Good morning, church. What a beautiful day. It's great to be here. Oh, man. I'm uh, another week older. <clears throat> my body feels about two years older. Oh, my goodness. It's wonderful to see everybody. We'll be in uh, Zechariah today. If you heard last week's uh, sermon, it was over six verses, very straightforward about returning to God and getting our priorities straight and, and putting God in the right place. Today, we're going to venture into the beginning of the visions. And um, we'll talk a little bit about this as the sermon starts, but it's, it's okay <laughs> to be confused. It's okay to have to read and reread and think, I just don't get it. That's fine. These sorts of things are intended to be that way. Um, and so as we read through it today, and if it piques your interest, as somebody who came to Christ, uh, I read the book of Revelation before I was a believer and was intrigued by how crazy it seemed, right? The, the, it was fantastic what was happening. Beasts and heads and horns. And, and I didn't know anything about how the Bible refers to those elements and what those would have meant symbolically. I had no knowledge of it, but all of it was like, how can this possibly be in a book that everybody believes is fully true? Um, obviously, I've learned a lot since then, but it's captivating. And so I, I enjoy preaching through these chapters because it's challenging for me and also because it was a very instrumental a part in my coming to Christ was that curiosity. So if, if you're confused but curious, um, good. That's a great place to be. And I'll tell you, don't lean on me or anybody else. Uh, lean on the Lord. Um, these sorts of things were written by him for his glory. And um, we do well to, to remember that, I guess, as we venture into this. So let's read. We'll be finishing uh, Zechariah 1 and all of Zechariah 2. And it's going to cover basically about three Three and a half-ish, three visions in its entirety. So if you've got your Bible, feel free to follow along uh, with, or you could read it up on the screen. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all, at, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah? against which you have been angry for these 70 years. And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, My cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these? And he said, These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen, and I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. 
And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what its width and what its length, and what, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude and people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. And I will be her glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus, says, for thus said the Lord of hosts, After his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them. And they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord. For he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, as we begin to venture you know, headfirst, we're diving right into these visions, these prophetic visions, visions that a prophet had that are designed not to just tell a tale, Lord, but to, to prophesy about your work, your, the, the future of, of mankind in many regards, Lord, in addition to how you're going to be intimately involved with that. This is more than just soothsaying, Lord. This is more than just divination, figuring out what's happening next. This is knowledge that you have chosen to impart to your people in a manner that might be confusing to us, Lord. Help us to trust you as we always do. Help us to lean on you and your Holy Spirit in its entirety to interpret this, not to lean on our own understanding and not to just trust uh, folks that say they've got it all figured out and understand it, Lord, but to, to, to bring it back to you, to let you do what you are going to do in our lives, what you promised to do, and that is to never leave us, never forsake us, even in the midst of, of Bible passages that maybe seem challenging, Lord. Thank you for this time together. In your sense, I may pray. Amen. All right. So I called this uh, sermon Righteous Jealousy. We'll talk about that a little bit more, but we see, um, you know, a lot of what's happening here, and we, see, we heard God say, I am jealous, very jealous of what's going on. Um, and like many things that we might think we don't quite get from God's perspective, uh, jealousy is one of those where we try to take what we think of as jealousy and equate it to God and say, well, you know, is jealous the right word? Uh, that seems like maybe a bad thing. Uh, we'll, I hope I can convince you otherwise we go through this. But let the visions commence. If you recall, I said there'll be visions. These are visions. Um, now, these visions, I want to be very clear, are allegorical or symbolic. So they're telling a tale, and they're using symbols to do it. They aren't intended to be literal, um, and this means we must interpret it. The good news is we don't have to do this in a vacuum. So probably the most dangerous way, in my opinion, to study prophecy is to go by yourself into a room and think about it a whole bunch. Try to, try to come up with ideas and see what sticks and makes the most sense. We don't have to do that. We're all here together. We can study this together. We can talk through this together. Uh, we've got thousands of years of expertise of other individuals that have studied these. We should leverage that. But 
primarily and fundamentally, we have the Holy Spirit. If you are indwelled with the Holy Spirit, if you, are, if you know who Jesus Christ is, you are saved. The Holy Spirit is working in your life right now to take passages like this and illumine them to you. Maybe not all right away. That too will happen in God's time. But we read it faithfully. We know that the word doesn't come back void, even if we don't fully understand it. So back to jealousy. Isn't jealousy generally bad? Human jealousy is rarely, if ever, righteous. There's probably some cases of this, but I, generally speaking, our jealousy is wanting for us what another has. If I were to say I'm jealous of Mike, it doesn't mean that I, I believe that I want good for Mike because I love him so dearly. It generally would mean he has something that I wish I had. Right? Jesse's girl is not about this guy being jealous and wanting best for Jesse. It's he wants Jesse's girl. That song is, uh, is, is human jealousy embodied in a song. If, if you're not familiar with the song, um, unbelievable. But it suffice to say that's what it's about. God's jealousy is wanting for himself what is rightfully his. That's what makes it righteous jealousy. When he's jealous for his people, that's because they're his people. He created them. He imbued them. He created the world they live in. Everything they have, it's his. He wants them to keep, God wants them to keep God in the proper place in their heart, and it's the right thing to do because they are his people. His jealousy is righteous. Now, regarding visions, <laughs> as we do this, you'll hear a lot of things like most likely, probably, could be, ought to be. People say, expertise says, theologically speaking, be wary of anyone who claims 100% understanding of the passages. This includes myself and Mike. There will not be, you'll, I'm going to, I'm, I'm caveating all this now because there's going to be slides where it says this means da, 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 da. Just know that that's my best guess, what we understand. These, symbolism is designed to communicate truth indirectly. If God wanted us to know what the Great Commission was very clearly, he would spell it out, and he did so. Very clear. There's no symbolism when it came to these Ten Commandments and these these big ideas uh, that, that require very clear, concise understanding of God and His law. God chose to use visions and symbols and allegory in areas of the Bible because He wants these truths to not be directly communicated. They're supposed to be understood based on what is happening here. Why did He do that? I do not know. It's God's prerogative. But we know that when we study this, it's, it's reasonable and also makes a, a lot of sense biblically that there is going to be some debate about these things. I think that is part and parcel to the notion of this. So let's dive in. The first vision. We see Zechariah talking about there's a man, he's on a red horse, and he's among the myrtle trees and there are other horses surrounding him. Uh, we are told the horses and likely the riders are patrolling the earth. So the setting here is very, very strange for us. And uh, it's, it's important to note that with a lot of these visions, they may have been much more meaningful to them. Uh, this is a very beautiful place to start when it comes to visions and interpretation. Because what we see at the beginning of this is he was standing among the myrtle. This is verse 8, Zechariah 1.8. I saw in the night, behold, a man on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him a red Sorrel and white horses. Red, everybody familiar with the color red? White, right? What about Sorrel? 
We do not know. We don't know what that color is. That's something that they probably knew. We might say mauve or something, I don't know, or, or brown or tan, could be speckled. We have words that we use for different things, but nobody knows definitively what this word means. People will speculate that it means brown or whatever. The beauty of this being so early in the visions is there's going to be a great deal of this, things that we just can't 100% know. But what we see is there's these, these horses are different colors. And in the Bible, things mean things that they don't necessarily mean today, but myrtle would have been uh, trees very common to Israel, and that was kind of a nickname for Israel. So when they says he's standing among the myrtle trees, this is basically amongst Israel, there are these horses, red Kind of war generally means white means peace. That's a very common uh, kind of euphemism in visions and in the Bible in general. So we see horses representing war, horses representing peace, and then the Sorel horse, we call it maybe a brown or tan or something, and they're kind of hanging out in the area. And their job is to patrol the earth. And they report in and say, hey, the earth's at rest or at peace. Everything's fine. Even the, the war horses are not at war. So it would seem. Right? We've got red horse, we've got white horses, and they're agreeing that everything's at peace. Now this sounds good, but it's not for Israel. Because despite the world being at peace, Israel's cut into parts and longing for a home. Now this would have really resonated with them. They're in two places, they were in exile, they are back. The, no big events are happening, but things aren't right with Israel. This as a vision, I think also is, like many visions, starts to apply to us a lot more readily. We look at the state of our nation. We look at what's going on, the people that are in distress, the suffering that's occurring, the lostness that's overwhelming, drug addiction, sexual impropriety, all these things, they're running rampant. But if you were to say, hey, is the United States at war? Oh, no. No, the world's, the world's at peace right now. There's a couple of places, but generally we're not in a world war, Right? There's no military conflicts happening worldwide right now. But we're not at peace. <laughs> we're not at peace at all. While the world's at peace, Israel begs for mercy. And it says here, the Lord uh, answers with gracious and comforting words. I love this. It doesn't even say what those gracious and comforting words were, but the Lord did this. Begged, Lord, when's it going to happen? Why? The Lord gives him peace and comfort. And he tells us he is jealous for his remnant and he is mad at other nations. This will not stand. The Lord is not pleased with the way things are. This is not the final phase. His anger, that's true. His love, also true. Well, when, when are you going to do something about it? In time. In time. There are things that must take place, things that we don't understand, things that the Israelites didn't understand, things that Zechariah didn't understand, that this is what's going to happen. This peace is hollow. They're at peace, but they're not honoring God at all. The nations are self-reporting. Everything's fine. This is exactly what we see in the world today. Yeah, we're good. We're not at war, but there's no honor for God whatsoever. We're at war, all right. We're at war with the throne. But we're not seeing that war actively, right? This, this spiritual war that's within us and happening in the heavens, that's all invisible to us, so we just pretend that it's not there. And since I'm not taking up arms against other people, we must be at peace. But fear not, the Lord tells them they will be prosperous. They will dwell with the Lord again, and there will be comfort as God chooses them. It's not over. He is not done working. It's far from over. Justice will be served. It will be taken care of. Trust in that. 
the second vision. Four horns. And here's a good example. These horns are the superpowers of the age. Just put a most likely in front of that. Uh, generally speaking, when we see horns in the Bible, they represent power. Some sort of power. Four powers. We talk about Revelation, you see beasts with seven and ten horns and things like that. These would be, this is a beast that has the might of ten powerful entities alongside of it that has ten horns. In this case, we see four horns. Now, there's still debate. Uh, some people say it's northeast, south, and west, meaning everything is against Israel. That's fine. Could well be. What we find is no matter how you interpret this, four nations at this time, four prior nations, four nations of the future, um, it all comes down to the same thing. They are attacking the people of God, but this is at God's discretion. Babylon was not, once, you know, I use this uh, uh, euphemism all the time, but this wasn't like, Babylon did what? And God's like, hold on a minute, how do I get those guys back? I didn't even know. You know, I just, I run to the bathroom for two seconds, and now boom, Babylon takes all my people. God did all this. He's, a, he's in the midst of this. We see it all the way back in Genesis, the first book of the Bible. John Piper changed my mind about many of these things in a sermon he preached where he said, it, it says, God, you intended it for good, but God intended it for bad. Or, or you intended it for bad, and God intended it for good. And he was like, don't get God off the hook. Intended it. What it was, God did that. God did this. Now, that may be hard for us to stomach if we don't know who God is. But if you know who God is... Even though we don't understand it, we'll learn to trust that God is in charge. So he has scattered the people. These four horns, these superpowers are real things in the world. When we look at this today and we try to think of powerful entities in the world today, we could probably pick some out. Countries, uh, political bodies that have a great deal of power, can wreak havoc, can take lives, can annihilate areas of the earth. Very powerful. But we know that God's not happy with that. If God's people are being oppressed by four powers of the earth, it's tempting to think that, you know, I guess God's just done with us. You know, He's walked off and they're just going to collapse in on us and completely consume us. But here what we see in these visions is God saying, no, 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 I'm, I'm, still, I'm still miffed. I'm miffed that the way that things are going this way. This is not the end state. I'm allowing it to happen. It's going forward, but it's not pleasing. It, it does bring a degree of, of anger to God. He is, but he's waiting in his time to do things his way. And in this case, what we see is four craftsmen. <laughs> I mean, you think of massive, powerful nations. Um, the, a craftsman may not be the answer. In an onslaught of, of jets today to send out you know, a bunch of woodworkers seems like maybe a bad move. But once again, it's symbolic. A craftsman is, a, is most likely a contrast to a mighty nation, right? And we see a lot of this in the Bible. David and Goliath. Big, giant knight on one side. Small function on the other. David was slight. He had a sling and a stone. David throws a stone, brings the giant down. Well, we didn't see that coming, right? We thought we'd have to bring military might against it. That was a very strategic move. That's what we see here. One rules by force and might, massive domination of power, quantities, uh, uh, just a huge amount. The other completes their task with precision. Craftsmen are notorious. Things, we have sayings that craftsmen use, like measure twice, cut once. We don't often do that. Maybe measure three times. But the point is, before we take action, it's usually craftsmen 
especially those that are good at their craft, any craft, are very detailed. They want to do it right the first time. They want to minimize waste and loss. They want to be very effective at their task. This most likely symbolizes the longer-term process of the Lord working for His people. Yes, there's going to be opposition. It's going to seem mighty. It's going to seem insurmountable. It's going to seem that doom is imminent. But what God is doing is perfect in His time. If anybody has ever dealt with something that takes time to do right, trying to be accelerated, if you ever built a house, repaired a car, uh, had a, have a family and watched them grow, you know, there's a saying, I work in the IT industry, and there's a, there are things that take time. And there's a saying that we use a lot, which is, you know, three women can't have a baby in three months. <laughs> Doesn't matter how many we've got. It takes nine months to have a baby. You can't just add more women and get it done quicker. That's how it works. That's a lot. When we see the way, the contrast here is there's a craftsman that's doing something. What God's talking about is there's a, there's a plan, and it's being assembled carefully and perfectly, and lovingly, and with a goal to preserve, to restore to God what is God's. But God has dictated those craftsmen's job, and they're doing it at the time that God has told them to do it. Meanwhile, the nations, the horns are rising and falling. I mean, I grew up in a world where, where, the, where Russia and the United States were going to be going to war any minute now. It was a cold war, but it was a war. And they were the evil empire, and, and there was real threats of nuclear war. And then fast forward a few years, and then Russia, they're still a nuisance in some regards in the world, of course, but they're not the USSR that I grew up with. The threat is different now. One of those horns was shattered to bits, but new horns cropped back up. The world goes on, but the craftsmen continue their task. Then a third vision. A man with a measuring line. And he's off to measure Jerusalem, likely to plan for a new bill. It's a little bit confusing here, the wording, but there's basically the angel that's with Zechariah, and another angel says to Zechariah, hey, you should tell Zechariah this, this statement, and that is that Jerusalem is going to be so big that a wall is impractical, right? There's going to be livestock, there's going to be huge farms and buildings and people. It's going to be massive, absolutely massive. Now, at this time, no wall. <laughs> you know what that means, open season on your city. You're going to get plundered in no time. The wall's all you had. It was a much different world then. You didn't really have police force and militaries. You stood the post. The city defended itself, and a wall was a big part of that. Well, but then here what we see is there won't be a physical wall. The Lord will be a wall of fire around her. He will also be her glory. It's worth noting this is quite a departure from Jerusalem's current state. Now, where we are today in America, much of this, I think, is hollow because America is a very great state. Now, I'm not trying to blow smoke up here in Yerah, America. I love it here. It's a blessing. I'm thankful every day for all those that have made America what it is today. But we don't have this idea of worried about Canada strolling down here and taking all of our, you know, livestock and women and killing us and taking it. We don't have that threat. It's just not part of our lives. That was a real thing at this time. If you didn't defend yourselves, your small area, big areas would come. Babylon's already done it. Persia's already done this stuff. Right? This is not, it could happen. It did happen. They knew it was going to happen. And now we see is it's a huge city. A city so big that you can't even imagine it. Right? Now, we think of a city the size of America, and it's, uh, that, even that's hard to imagine. What they're talking about here is where they were from, their hometown. Imagine, if you could, 
that Martinsville is a city, that there was a vision, and somebody said, oh, Martinsville, I'm not worried about that. Martinsville is going to be 15 million people. That's kind of the reaction. What? <laughs> Martinsville, that's like three orders of magnitude. Where are 15 million people going to go? Well, it's going to be huge. Well, then our police force and our fire department and the water and sewer, the school system, how are we going to keep up? Oh, the Lord will be your fire and sewer. I mean, it's not a perfect example, but the notion here is like, don't worry about that. What I'm telling you is I'm going to blow this up. It's going to be bigger than you can possibly imagine because I'm going to take care of it. It's not going to be you and your armies and your hard work and your walls and your city government and your local this and that. None of that's going to matter. The Lord's there. Guess who attacks the city of the Lord and wins? Spoiler alert, nobody. You don't win that fight. You do not win that fight. And then we see a final encouragement at the end of this little chunk here. Come back from the land of the north. The Lord has spread you out but wants you to return. Now, I think this is so beautiful because what we see is God sent them away because of disobedience. But he wants them back. It wasn't perpetuity. Beloved, if you feel like you've been sent away and because of disobedience, you feel the Holy Spirit saying, yeah, I, you know, where I am is where I deserved to be. I wanted that, and God gave it to me, and it is a mistake. It's not too late. Come back from the north. The, the, the choice of words, uh, I love it, where it says, uh, up, up. Get up. Now, go, action. Get up. Flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. I spread you abroad as the four winds of the heaven. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. I think of somebody uh, trying to get, if you're trying to get kids to hurry up, like practice, we're going to get warmed up, and you start, you have to, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. That's what this is. This is hand clapping. This is go. Get out. Go home. It's time to go home. Right now. We've been preaching a lot about urgency in the last few books. It's continuing. Up, 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 go. Quickly, 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 quickly. There's no time to lose. God wants you back today. Come back. Get out of Babylon. I know that's where I put you, but it's time to come back. It's time to come back. Turns out this is also twofold. Because the the day of the Lord is coming, he will shake his hand over the nations. I don't know exactly what that would entail, but I can't think of it being good at all. And they will be plunder for the Israelites. So God's going to sort this out. Many will turn to the Lord in that time. This also would have been uh, a real shock. to the, Wait, you're going to have more people? I thought we were your people. Uh, once again, in our world, we don't see that as much, but that's the, that's the case. Is Yeah, what we're seeing come to pass, what our mission is, it's being communicated very clearly through Zechariah. At that time, he will dwell with his people, his jealousy complete. What he was jealous for is come home. Now he is happy. Everything is the way God intended it to be through the entire arc of human history to a place where the Lord has rebuilt the holy city. It is indwelt with his people. He dwells with them for eternity. So let's talk about the final four. Righteous jealousy provides perfect providence. Righteous jealousy provides miraculous mercy. Righteous jealousy provides judicious justice, and it provides gratuitous grace. There's a lot of alliteration there. Uh, This is helpful for me. (laughs) 
I like to alliterate. <clears throat> it helps me to remember them. <clears throat> Pardon me. Righteous jealousy provides perfect providence. So, you know, providence is just the Lord providing. The, the words right there, if you take the N-C-E off there, it's provide, right? The Lord provides perfectly. Whatever we need in his perfect will is provided to us. And we may not always, we may not always feel that, but in these visions, all this stuff that's happening, the captivity, the return, the, the, the vengeance, God is ever-present. He's always there providing for and directing it all. It's never a, uh, you're, you're never want for something that you need in God's eyes. You might be want for something. You might think, oh, I really need this. and You know, this used to be. But for, for everybody that's had a bunch of wonderful things and had all that stuff taken away, you're going to be able to talk to somebody else that says, yeah, I've been there. You know, we used to, we used to be, uh, you know, was, I had a, a big business, this, that, and the other, and that all collapsed, and, and now it's different, but I'm still happy, or I'm happier. Because I've noticed that what I needed, the Lord's provided. What I want, I don't have, but that's okay. I've grown, to, I've grown to understand that maybe what I want gets clouds my judgment, so it's been taken from me. God's providence is perfect. And this is a wonderful reminder of who God is despite our circumstances. There are times when it will feel imperfect. There's times when the Israelites, as evidenced by a lot of what they say, are not happy with what God has done for them or to them. It's not fair. It's not right. If you loved us, you'd do this. If you... That's uh, just not true. It seems that way, but it's not true. His providence is perfect. If it's coming, if it's, if it's in our lives and we are working for God, what God is providing is exactly what we need. His mercy is miraculous. Now, I'll say all mercy is a miracle, so let's not get that mistaken. I'm not saying some mercy somehow we're deserved or it's entitled or all of it's miraculous. But his desire for us to be his alone leads to overwhelming mercy. What we deserve over and over every second minute, hour, day of our lives has already been born on the cross, is taken care of, and we are not held accountable. Now, if you don't know who Jesus is, if you have not accepted Jesus' forgiveness and begun the journey of repentance, then that is on you. That's exactly why we're talking today. <laughs> I want people to know that there's a way out of this endless loop of sin and doubt and shame over and over and over. Sin won't stop, nor will the doubt. The shame will come back. But there's a place for it to go, and that's at the foot of the cross. I know that Jesus died for me. He's paid for all my sins, past, present, and future. Will I still commit them? Yes. Will I feel bad about them? Yes. Will I and, this, and Satan try to convince me that, they're, uh, that there's not enough mercy for that, that that one probably wasn't paid for? Yes, but it's not true. God's mercy is overwhelming. Whatever you can do... Whatever you could whelm, it'll, it'll overwhelm it. I don't know, it's not really a saying, but it's, it's incomprehensible what his mercy is capable of. People that have done horrible things and feel like they cannot possibly be forgiven find peace in that. Time and time again, he is tolerating our failing and welcoming us home. I, I waffled on the word tolerating like, like he puts up with it, but he does. It's through forgiveness and repentance that he does so, but he does. He knows I'm going to sin again, and he doesn't cast me out. I don't know why, except that he's chosen to love me because it glorifies him. His son has paid for it. It's finished. That is miraculous mercy. 
His, provi- his jealousy provides judicious justice. Judici- judicious <clears throat> means wise. And of course, God is wise. I don't think anybody's going to say God is not wise. Anybody that believes. Many people might think that God's a fool because why does he bother with all this? But it's, of course, not true. We just may not comprehend the wisdom. We often say that, but then we turn around and ask God, why? Why, God? Why this? Why me? Why him? Why her? Why us? Why now? We are not as judicious and want revenge, not justice. That's what we want. When we're saying why, I lost my job. Why me? I don't think, oh, interesting, God. What comes next? I can't wait to see. I can't wait to see in your divine plan what this means. Something needed to change, Lord, and I trust in that. No, no, no. I want my job back. Or I want to know what's going on. Or I'm, I'm due a severance. Someone's head's going to roll. This is not fair. And it's not right. Now, will, we, will the world do terrible things to us as they're just general you know, bad luck or what have you? Sure, fine, we can say that all day. But if we believe that God is just and is wise and His mercy is with us, then we should know that as things happen in the world, even though we don't like it or dig it, or on its face is bad, is hard, is tough, is sad, that it is, God is still there. God is still there. And when we think about what I want versus what God wants, and I meditate on that, inevitably I come to a place where God's justice is perfect, and it's right on time and target. It doesn't miss. It wasn't a little short. It wasn't slightly late. It wasn't exactly the justice that would have been. It is perfect. Mine will not be. What I think is justice is usually vengeance. If you have a question about this, look at our, our, our court systems. This is the best we've got. And we take a bunch of people. The Supreme Court has, you know, nine folks, and they sit around, and they weigh the options, and they don't even agree, and the majority rules. Is that justice? It is because we said it was. But there are people that disagree with the outcome. They're sitting right next to their peers. It's five to four. Well, you know what that means. Justice A is, not, is justice, and justice B is no longer the justice. We just decided new justice. God does not work that way. His justice is perfect. It is unbelievably wise. When I say it's judicious, it's because we've not, we don't have anything to compare it to. We think we are judicious. We think we do, we make wise decisions. We do, we try to weigh options. But our purview is so limited by what we can experience and what we understand. Right? These chairs are blue because we as a people agreed that they're blue. That's it. We just decide that they are, and that's what they are. You can bring people into rooms. Have you ever done this? Said, look at this, look at that purple car. And someone else would be like, that car's not purple. That car's red. It's purple. Do you remember the dress that went around the internet? Was it blue and gold or I don't even remember what it was? White. Blue and black or white and gold. And there are people like, they're ready to put on brass knuckles and let's go outside. We'll figure out who's black and blue real quick, right? Over a picture of a dress because we can't agree. We think we know. I'm very wise. I know what's going on, but we don't. God knows what color that dress is. And that's the color, because God said so. That's not a, n- another not imperfect example. Lastly, uh, righteous jealousy provides gratuitous grace. So gratuitous just means uh, over the top, way over the top. When I talk about mercy overwhelming, we're talking about grace unending. Mercy and grace are two terms we like. Mercy is, hey, this is due to me, and it's been withheld from me, right? 
I sinned, the wages of that are death, and God has put that on Christ. He has shown me mercy. Christ stood in my place, and I am now not going to be punished with what I should be punished with. That's mercy. Grace is, then they write a check for $1,000 and send me on my way. If I went to the court of law and someone else went to jail for me, and then I got a stipend for speeding, that would be mercy and grace. Has anybody ever experienced that here in the world? Where you did something wrong, you were 100% wrong, you were caught, evidence, guilty is charged, your sentence is being paid for by somebody else, and here's some, some stuff to take with you, to, you know, some new clothes and maybe a car. Thank you for coming in. No, if it happened, what do you think would happen in the world today? People would lose their minds. They, I, I got caught speeding, and they gave me a new car. What do you think people would start doing? Speeding. You bet they would. I want a new car. Let's go speed. You think, well, that's a silly example. That's a biblical example. Paul had to contend with this. Hey, you know what we should do? <laughs> if, if sins get forgiven, and forgiven is mercy, then let's sin more so that we can experience God's mercy more. This was an actual argument made. And Paul had to argue down. That's exactly what we do. Why? Because I want, I want me. I want that. If I have a way to get more mercy, I want it. Well, mercy is just, can, mercy brings us back to zero. Grace takes us above. God's endless gifts given to us are far more than we deserve or even comprehend. It's the last part there that's critical. Certainly we don't deserve it. But there are things, and I can look back at my life and see all these points in my life where there was grace that I didn't even know was grace. Things that I didn't even appreciate at the time. I look back and think, wow, he was, he was right in the midst of that. God provided for me in a way I didn't even understand. God took something for me that at the time I was so angry about. But now I see. I see the bigger picture. I see it unfolding. I'm starting to see a little bit as the craftsman is working in my life that yes, indeed, there is a plan and it is coming together. Maybe I don't grasp it fully, but I can see already that it's, it's taking shape. The pinnacle of this grace, of course, is the sacrifice of his only son for our sins. That provided the mercy, but the act itself is gracious beyond. Uh, it, it's, just, it, it's beyond. So what about us? Just like those in Zechariah's time, we need to be reminded that God is still God. If there's anything we take from this, these three visions, it's God talking about, I'm still here. I'm going to take care of you. There's a bigger plan that you guys don't understand yet. Trust in me to see this through. Will I rebuild Jerusalem? Yes, I will. But if you want Jerusalem more than you want God, you probably won't be there. Trust God. The rest will be added. He's jealous for us and will do what it takes to preserve us. That is absolute biblical truth, church. He is jealous for us and will do what it takes to preserve us. That doesn't mean we're going to live forever, but we'll be preserved. What we need, God has taken care of. What we must have, it is finished. It is finished. It's done right now. There is nothing, there is no other requirement between you and eternity than Jesus Christ. And he's already paid the price. It's done. Right now, done. The rest of this, the debates about what comes next and how, yes, let's have them and discuss them. But the, the work, the work of it all that matters in eternity is finished. 
We may feel forgotten from time to time, but we must know that we are not. Right? I used the adage of the, 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 the old farm couple, and she's in the pasture seat, and sometimes we're in the, we're in the back of the RV that's being towed behind the truck. Well, you know, I'm by, uh, God's left me. And we ignore the fact that he's still in the truck. He's towing us down the road. We're in comfort, but we feel alone. And we're the ones that walked back there. And we did all this, and then we turned and said, God, why? Why did you let me do the things that I insisted on doing, Lord? And he's up there saying, I didn't move, because he didn't move. God's given us today this very minute of time to know him better. We talk about mercy and grace. It's grace. Every breath we take, every second more we have to share the good news, somebody gets to hear it. Somebody digs into the Bible for the first time. Someone heard the words of Zechariah for the first time today, perhaps. That's grace from God. It's not going to come back void. I can tell you, our, our jobs in some regards are so easy when you understand that reading the Word of God changes lives no matter what else is said. The rest of this is nice to have. This is grace too, being able to explain and think about it. But the reality is, you read Zechariah, lives change. Let's not squander today by worrying about our circumstances of the past. It's tempting. You know, I'm not saying we, we're carefree. I don't even need to pay my taxes. God's taking care of me. No, I've got to pay our taxes. But what's past is prologue. What, is, what has occurred does not have to dictate what comes next. Jesus stands at the door and will change your life today, this very second. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thankful again for this time together. Thankful for books that are, are challenging. Lord, you, you know it excites me. It gets me fired up. But Lord, help me not to get too caught up. Help us all not to get too caught up in the interpretation and the understanding and the science of the word, Lord, but to know that everything that we study today, all the interpretation is designed by you to point to you, to the work of your son on the cross, to our need for you. We cannot do it alone. We can't interpret this word effectively alone. We can't change the world around us alone. We can't live a a life that's going to be completely fulfilling on our own. We need you, Lord. The world will grind us up, chew us up, spit us out with no regard for anything that we care about at all. But then there's you, Lord. And maybe we think that you're grinding us up, and you're, but you're not. You're honing us, Lord. You're pruning us. You're helping us grow in a, in a manner befitting your glory. And when we feel like we are just downtrodden and beat up, Lord, help us to remember these, these passages that you have not forsaken us, that there's a new Jerusalem coming, a new day coming where everything is going to be made new and we get to dwell with you forever, Lord. And if someone's hearing this message today and they're tired of the, the hamster wheel of this life, feeling like all they do is stay in one place no matter how fast they run, Lord, I pray that they'll reach out, if not to us, to somebody that they know that is, claims the name of Christ and they can speak truth into their lives, show them that they are not alone, that there is good news, and that everything that needs to be done for their salvation has been done. All they have to do is accept it and begin to repent. Lord, what an awesome gift of mercy. The peace, the honor to gather together, the fun that we have in this room, this is all grace on top of the mercy that you gave us to be able to commune in your name, Lord. And we pray as a church, as we 
think about how we could strategically be more effective in our community, Lord, that you will remind us that you are in that endeavor. And no matter which directions we go and how we choose to A or B or C or D, Lord, that we can trust that you will be right there alongside of us, providing for us, no matter what choice we make, Lord. And we want that. We want that more than anything, Lord. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for this word of unbelievable power. It's your sons in my prayer. Amen.